0: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and welcome to The Economist's Cultural Review of 2016 and our look ahead to 2017. To start, I've asked our two guests to take a very personal look at the past 12 months. They're two of our senior editors, Fiametta Rocco and Jonathan Beckman. Welcome to you both. So, Fiametta, arts and books editor no less – You've got a great waterfront on what has happened in the arts in the past year, but now you have to choose your darlings. Well, I think if I look back, I can see myself sitting in bed, reading
1: a typescript of a book called Meetings with Remarkable Manuscripts. It's written by Christopher de Hamel, who has literally examined more medieval manuscripts than any human who has ever walked this earth. And he can write. It's simply wonderful. Very, very political, very revealing and really quite a surprise. And my other memory, I think, would be standing outside Tate Modern in the pouring rain on 16th June when it opened. It is remarkable how the art world was anti-Brexit, anti-leaving, and that opening of Tate Modern, I think, really epitomised it
0: for me. Jonathan, your top tips of the year.
2: Um, well, I think for the second year in a row, the Booker Prize judges got it right um, and chose The Sellout, which was, a, I thought, a fantastic, scabrous, blasphemous and very funny novel. Um, but it was a very interesting shortlist. And I, I believe that the, the book that almost won it was David David Schloy's All That Man Is, which is also an incredibly accomplished piece of work and comic in a much more muted vein. The best shows I've seen this year have all, strange enough, been of video uh, art, or at least moving image. There was the Infinite Mix, the Haywoods show of 10 contemporary artists um, at the store in The Strand, which was a, a bit of an Infinite Mix bag, but it contained some fantastic pieces, particularly Khalil Joseph's Mad about Compton in Los Angeles. And um, there was Ritz's Pixel Forest in the New Museum in New York, which is surreal and celebrates all that's nubby and stubby and protuberant. My favourite show, there was William Kentridge's Thick Time at the Whitechapel Gallery in London. Um, He's got such a fecund uh, imagination. It combines video and animation and strange portmanteau sculptures and is elusive and inventive and highly intelligent.
0: And what about you? You get to see a lot of things. Yes, I'm going to go for gender-bending Shakespeare as my top trend of 2016, and I'm sure it's going to tip us into 2017. I saw Glenda Jackson as Lear, very praised production at the Old Vic in London. I think also given Glenda Jackson's own age, perfect for playing Lear. Uh, that was quite an event, but I had a slight preference for Harriet Walter, who was finishing off her trilogy for the Donmar. She was finishing it as Prospero. If there was ever a part that would lend itself to some gender magic, that must surely be it. I am beginning to wonder, however, when we see male actors going up to their and saying, I've got to do Lady Macbeth, I'm going to pick film of the year, for me, a documentary film of the year, which was Wiener, the extraordinary story of of a poor old Wiener, depending which way you look at it, who gets himself into an, an awful lot of trouble. He's, of course, married to an aide of Hillary Clinton's and it was a sort of disaster saga about his own career as he ran for office in New York while caught up in an increasingly scabrous texting and sexting scandal. But I think it said such a lot about spin, about politics, and it turned out to be rather Predictive, didn't it, of the sort of decline of mainstream Democrat politics in the US this year? Fear <laughs> Meta, any other treats of the year when you're not slaving over hot pages? I like to think that you get out and about, and indeed you get out and about a bit globally. I do get out and about uh, a bit globally, but I have to say that
1: my most favourite time is reading and this has been a year for some extraordinary translated fiction in fact this is where the most interesting fiction is being written and I think my choice for this year would be certainly the most erotic novel I read all year was The Vegetarian by Han Kang very slim little Korean novel that blew into our world when it won the Man Booker International
0: Prize in May extraordinary book. Jonathan? Any erotic fiction on your horizon in twenty sixteen?
2: I'm afraid I've left erotic fiction rather behind me. But I do think there's—I mean, what is increasingly finding is—is—is is, is kind of hybrid non-fiction books that are kind of doing so many of the things that we want novels to do. I particularly liked Olivia Lang's *The Lonely City*, which was part memoir, part art history, very personal and kind of tender art history and a, a book that was a meditation on what it means to be alone in a city and what what's the kind of melan- the melancholy and the awareness that that gives you.
0: You do pick up on an interesting trend there that a lot of... Readers or indeed publishers who would want to be looking for fiction now maybe looking at something that is is blurring the, the boundaries of fiction and non-fiction more. Do you see that too, fiametta I
1: absolutely see it, and one of the places where you really do see it is in graphic novels, which are, you know, not really comics but they are novels, and they're incredibly moving. Two that have come out this year have been extraordinary. One is Post. The most loquacious, wordy writer actually lends himself brilliantly to graphic novels. And one is a strange book about growing up in Singapore. So, this completely quiet, safe, efficient country also lends itself to that great kind of human grappling mess that the best graphic novel is.
0: Uh, on the human grappling mess, I'm going to pick another highlight of my year which was after about 20 years of trying finally getting to Bayreuth uh, to, to the opera there to do some uh, some commentary on Wagner and the, the ring cycle and I think for anyone who loves opera or is even just interested in opera and in the staging of Wagner it has to be uh, sort of lifetime ambition, and it's one of the things that you, when you get there, it's about, you've imagined everything to be very grand, and you find that you've gone to quite a small town with a you know, sort of moderately small uh, auditorium, uh, and people in a slightly unfortunate German evening dress. And actually, it is a very sort of fun experience, as well as of course the seriousness of Wagner and the way that everybody is sort of silent and transformed by it, and goes into a. a kind of trance and then as soon as it's over then starts gabbling manically about what they've seen so I thought it was as a piece of opera exactly what Wagner did want he wanted the Gesamtkunstwerk the total work of art and guess what even in 2016 Bayreuth does provide that 2017 is the 100th anniversary of the Russian revolution I'm joined by The Economist's Russia and Eastern Europe correspondent Arkady Ostrovsky Arkady, we know that here in London, there's a wave of films, there are new books coming, there were going to be exhibitions. But how is this being perceived in Russia?
3: Well, this is probably one of the most difficult events for Russia to mark, or I should say for President Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin to mark. Because on the one hand, Putin has a natural aversion to any idea of a revolution, particularly the one directed against corrupt authoritarian regimes that refuse to share power. On the other hand, he has borrowed so much from the Soviet period in terms of symbolism, in terms of the Soviet national anthem, in terms of presenting the current Russia as a continuation of both the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union to him there is very little difference between the the Soviet Union and Russia today so he's he's taken so much from the soviet period that he can't just ignore it putin is very uncomfortable with with lenin actually lying in the center of Moscow, in Red Square. In fact, when he first came to power, there was a serious discussion about burying Lenin. So what they've done instead, not wanting to upset the communists and the uh, you know a lot of Russian people, they drape it, they cover it in the ribbons and the cloth of the Second World War victory, because that's the element which is sort of legitimizing power. So for him, this is a very difficult mark of how to reconcile. The idea of Russian Empire, the aversion to revolution and the Soviet past and its symbolism, which he brought back.
0: And more broadly... whatever the clampdowns at the top uh, throughout Russia under Vladimir Putin, there's still quite a lively art scene. There's a lot of contemporary art. There are quite edgy exhibitions that that go on. So how do you think that the arts community is seeing this? Is it an opportunity to do something interesting or is it something that the state is just doing over there best to be got through with a a couple of drinks and then continue?
3: That's a very good question. So the revolution results... In this amazing cultural explosion, it, it unleashes and releases enormous artistic energy. Today, it's a much more tame cultural scene. As I said, the legacy of the revolution in Russia is a is very schizophrenic experience because it's not something people can abstractly talk about or in the way that they can do in the West. You know, people who are creating art today are people who were born in the Soviet Union, a lot of them, who lived with the consequences of the revolution. The artists, interestingly, who are picking up on it isn't like Pussy Riot, is probably the best sort of expression Of that energy, but people, you know, for a lot of people in Russia, it's a real event, and they lived for seventy years with the consequences of it. And the last thing I would say is that the way Putin is dealing with it is very is very interesting. They seem to have come up with a new narrative. As you know, there were two revolutions actually taking place that year. There was a February Revolution of nineteen seventeen, which created the interim government, and which was a bourgeois revolution. And then there was October Revolution of the Bolsheviks. And this were two contrary events. Putin's decided to lump them all together and saying, look, we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the great Russian revolution. Never mind what it did. It was just a great Russian event.
0: Thank you, Arkady. And Arkady, you won the Orwell Prize for your book on Russia this year, did you not?
3: Yes. Uh, another
0: one coming next year?
3: Not next year. I think books take a lot longer. But yes, I am. I'm working on, on an idea for, for the next
0: book. Congratulations. Thank you. So, Fiametta, Jonathan, we're laying in the stocks for New Year's Eve, but what's 2017 got in store for us? Fiametta.
1: Well, you know, there are museums of contemporary art absolutely everywhere now. There's even somebody planning an Antarctic biennial for next year. But I think the real attention next year is going to be back in Europe, about once a decade there's a confluence of art shows the Venice Biennale, Documenta in Kassel, and the Sculpture Project in Munster. It only happens once every 10 years and it's a very very good moment to see what's really interesting to artists. Last time these big shows all happened together in 2007 was the moment when Ai Weiwei became a global name and I think next year We're going to see two things. We're going to see a lot of political art and a lot of performance art. This has been a growing trend and it's ready to become quite mainstream. It's very, very, very popular at biennials. And it's really art without walls. I mean, young people increasingly in Europe and in America are allergic to stuff. They want experiences. And particularly if there's audience participation This kind of performance art, you know, it's a special moment. You're
0: there when it's happening and then it disappears. They love it. I'm just going to put you very briefly on the spot on that. Performance art, is that now what immersive theatre was a few years ago? Some very good pieces came out of it. I sat through quite a lot of bad immersive theatre. Are you convinced that theatre without walls or performance art can sort of raise its quality to a consistency where we don't just say, well, that was an interesting idea, but a day later we've forgotten what it was all about? Well, you know, it's very interesting. There's a growing
1: trend that we see, particularly in Europe, I think, of young people who have become increasingly allergic to stuff. What they really like are experiences. And this is forcing artists to raise their game, particularly in those performance things where the audience is involved. So it's a moment, you're part of it, and then suddenly it's gone. But you know, if you look back at Marina Abramovich, at um, Olafur Eliasson, Tina Segal, all of these people who are really the best of the best in the art world,
0: they're about to become global names. You're sticking up for it. Quite right, too, Jonathan, one thing that struck me was the opening of Hamilton in the u k to a very different political context and that to which it was originally composed coming up in this year ahead.
2: Hamilton is this smash Broadway hit that seemed to be about you know the, this post racial state that America had found itself in in the Obama era comes to Europe you know this year in a very different political context about a man. Uh, who did his best to strengthen the hand of the federal government at a time when the man in charge of the federal government may be doing lots of things that people don't find particularly attractive. So I think it'll be interesting to see how how it plays out once, you know, it's come here and Trump or Trump has had nine months in power. Also, how people here respond to it. You know, Americans love American history. I don't think English people love American history very much, and you get, you see all of these enormous Pulitzer Prize-winning books that barely find publishers in this country and sell you know a handful of copies because we we seem to have very little interest in it. So whether whether the show itself will take off here. As much as it did in the States, I don't, I don't know.
0: I'm going to bet you it will because I think Hamilton is just seen as an event. And as you point out, that many people in the audience will be going to not knowing <laughs> at all who Hamilton <laughs> and is. And that may be true. I'm going to lay you a bet and we'll come back to the studio next year and see whether it was a hit or a miss. Matter, something else. Well, I'm going to cross the Atlantic the
1: other way. The show I'm most interested in is called Art and China After 1989, Theatre of the World. It's going to open at the Guggenheim in October and it'll be the biggest exhibition of Chinese experimental art ever. I think what's really interesting about it is that it's got probably three of the best curators on China, Alexandra Monroe from the Guggenheim, Phil Tenari from the Ulan Centre in Beijing, and Hu Hanru, who's now at the Maxi in Rome. They probably together have been working on this all their lives. And the starting point, of course, you know, nineteen eighty-nine, Berlin Wall came down dissolving the old post-war order. The internet was invented, which gave rise to globalization, to borderless world. In China decade of reform was crushed in Tiananmen Square. And in the art world, there was an extraordinary exhibition at the Pompeii Centre called The Magicians of the Earth. People still talk about it. And I think that's what this show is going to be. These three people are going to teach us how to think about art in China in relation to the times that we live in.
2: Well, one book I'm looking forward to this year is George Saunders' debut novel, Lincoln in Bardo, which uh, you know, Saunders is one of the you know, great short story writers of our time, but writing short stories and writing novels are very different things. So we'll see whether whether that's a that's success. But again, it's a highly charged subject to write about Lincoln. You know, it's about, about the death of Lincoln's son at the height of the Civil War at a time when every president who comes compares themselves to Lincoln, but some are more Lincoln-esque than others, I suppose.
0: I thought I'd put in a word for... Pop and rock. One of the big events I enjoyed a lot in 2016 was New Order concert, and just seeing New Order again, one of those 80s bands together, reaching back also to Joy Division, who went before them. And this audience, which was such a mixture generationally, and it, so it, 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 I felt I'd finally proved the point against people in my family who said when I was growing up, "Oh, it will all pass." <laughs> Here we all are, you know, knocking on a little bit in the years, and, and these bands uh, are having revivals. More of that. I think in 2017, there's a big Coldplay tour coming up for for people who like that sort of thing. I have uh, some devotees in my household and, and, and some of us who go into catatonic trance at the thought, but also bouncy Britpop, Squeeze, uh, some people re- will remember pre nineteen eighty eighty nine by a good way, I think uh, nineteen eighty some of it hits will reform, and as uh, someone said to me who knows that there's the, well you know, there is a point when all the feuds get put away, and the desire to go on tour again exceeds the desire to prolong feuds which have gone on for forty years, of- which I think is the industry norm, Jonathan
2: yeah often the financial need to go on tour as well is uh,
0: <laughs> i think I think there's a fan, there's sometimes a financial need, but you can often sort of tell and I th- when that's the case I saw The Who and I saw New Order uh, this year and I think they all have other ways of making money I okay. think they wanted to do again lesson for 2017 if you've still got each other's phone numbers you're probably going to be touring well that's all for this year to read more about all of the topics we've discussed in this show do pick up the new issue of The Economist our Christmas edition in fact you can find us online at economist.com and of course our magazine too 1843 in London This is The Economist.